your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox. Alongside us, we have a guest today, Joe Doyle. You can follow Joe on Twitter, at Joe Doyle, M-I-L-B, formerly of Prospects Live, currently part of Future Stars series. Joe, thanks so much for jumping back on the podcast. We love getting your draft expertise and your ability to cover prospects has been a, a tremendous resource for us. And, you know, previously with Prospects Live, we still value their contributions to the minor league realm as well in the prospects realm. But I want you to tell us about the new venture that you've become part of now, the Future Stars series, because wherever you go, Joe, we're going to follow. So if you could just give us a little insight on what you're working with now, that'd be great for the listeners. Well, fellas, thank you for having me back. And I must say, I I sure do have so many people fooled with <laughs> with my ability to evaluate prospects and cover the game. But no, I mean, um, Prospects Live was an absolutely wonderful journey that took place, you know, four, four and a half years. But uh, Future Star Series is going to be an opportunity for me to kind of spread my wings a little bit and travel around the country, going to different amateur and, and college events and, and just networking with uh a lot of people in the industry. It's run by a fella by the name of Jeremy Booth. Jeremy uh, was a was a big league scout for a very long time within different organizations, and uh, he has a lot of connections and a lot of friendships and networks that uh, I, I've really enjoyed kind of getting to know some of the other people close to Future Stars series. So just that opportunity to get a little bit closer to the game um, is something that I didn't want to pass up. Well, we're excited for you, and I'm very much looking forward to your draft coverage this year and beyond. We talk to you frequently before and after and during the draft, to be honest with you, over the last couple of seasons, so we really appreciate your relationship with us. And I I guess let's start there because we want to talk White Sox today. We also want to preview the upcoming amateur draft, of course, in a couple of months, but uh, our focus is covering the Chicago White Sox prospects, and you got a chance to talk to us a little bit about Noah Schultz following his draft selection last year. What's your take on the current structure of the White Sox minor league product under Mike Shirley, you know, given the last few draft picks and, and how they've developed so far? Yeah, so I, I really liked the the Noah Schultz pick. You know, I thought it was aggressive um, in, in that, you know, frankly, I'll put it this way. I, I was surprised that Noah Schultz signed for slot because I had heard that the number was going to be pretty big. And the fact that he took 2.8 mil, I thought, I thought that was a steal at 26, to be totally honest with you. Um, a lot of his value was kind of driven down in the spring. He got sick. He didn't get to pitch a whole bunch uh, his spring high school season. So nobody really got the chance to go see him, but everything that we saw the fall and, you know, early winter going into 2022 was really, really loud. Um, so I'm glad that they're taking him on slow. They're bringing him on slow. It's pretty rare that you can come across a six foot nine inch lefty that, um, you know, has spurts of pounding the strike zone with a double plus slider. So uh, I thought the the uh, approach there was sound. And frankly, you know, Peyton Palette probably would have gone 20 spots higher had he been healthy. I mean, it's a big, big uh, 3000 RPM curveball with a great fastball, really athletic frame. 
Uh, and so for those guys, I thought it was a great fit. As you kind of move down the White Sox draft philosophy, um, I'd like to see them go for some more arms. Uh, they went with a lot of uh, hitting prospects last year, and uh, they kind of did a little bit more of the same of that uh, towards the back half of 2021. And while they did go pitching a little bit heavier on the pitching side in 2021, I really think my personal philosophy is rounds five through 20 should be like mostly all arms because you're really not going to find a lot of impact hitters uh, in those rounds five through five through 20. So love the Eric Adler pick. Um, I thought Jonathan Cannon has done some things that make some sense in terms of becoming a starter long term. But um, the short version of all that, I'm sorry, is, is Noah Schultz was a fantastic pick for where you got him. Yeah, Joe, you know, it was just such a surprise. And obviously, like, we we kind of talked ahead of time. And, like, I knew the White Sox were, like, on him and really liked him. And to me, like, you know, it was just, like, kind of weird because I thought, okay, he's going to go to Vanderbilt because of the high price tag and this and that. But he was pitching in that college league here or whatever it was, you know, where he threw, like, 19 mm-hmm. innings. And usually, usually guys that are definitely going to campus, like, don't do that. So, like, I had some pause, but like you – like I just assumed that it would be over slot and I didn't think the White Sox would do that. So then like once they did it and then they also drafted Paulette, I guess, you know, I guess like, what do you think about just the strategy of like, if you're going to go with this risky demo within a risky demo with Schultz kind of insulating yourself and following up with like the two guys they did, I guess, plus you could maybe lump Tyler Schweitzer in with that too. So uh, listen, I I think the, the risky demographic for me at least only really applies to hard throwing righties. And I think when you look at Noah Schultz, he's just, he's so different in that he's huge and he's long and it it all works very fluidly. And I just, yeah, I mean, there's a chance that like every pitcher, he could get hurt. He could blow out. Um, But the the upside here is something totally different than you know a six foot two inch two hundred and five pound righty that throws ninety six out of high school. I mean we're talking about a six foot nine inch two hundred and thirty pound lefty that's been up to ninety seven with a devastating breaking ball. So I think you take that risk because like the the ultimate upside here, the ceiling of a Noah Schultz isn't your run of the mill average high school righty that settles in as a number three. Like Noah Schultz has ace potential if he ever throws as many strikes uh, with the fastball as a lot of people expect him to. Yeah, and it seems like, I mean, three drafts in, Mike Shirley kind of has a type, it seems. Now, they've gone three different areas. He's gone Garrett Crochet, Colson Montgomery, you know, and then Noah Schultz so far. I I guess, like, you know, teams say that they're going to take best player available and whatever. Maybe they take a college position player this time to round out the group. But any takeaway is just so far from Mike Shirley as scouting director and what he's like taken or recommended at least in the first round. Yeah, I've loved it. I mean, I was, I was very, very high on Colson Montgomery. I had him as one of the top, I think I had him as one of the top 12 or 13 players in that draft. Um, my only hesitation with Colson Montgomery was his age and that hasn't slowed him down. I mean, he's shot up the ladder uh, just kind of like I thought he would. So I loved the Colson Montgomery pick. I loved going for the left-handed impact bat that was Wes Kath. Sean Burke has really played uh, played out well with his slider and um, everything that he was at Maryland. So uh, like I said, if there's one thing that I would change a little bit 
about Mike Shirley's approach to the draft. I'd go a little bit more pitcher heavy from rounds five through 20, but I mean, his approach to the top 100 picks in the first three years, despite the Garrett Crochet pick not working out to this point, I think has been pretty sound. I mean, he's landed a lot of guys that in one way or another are going to contribute a role at the big league level. Joe, I want to stick to pitching real quick because you brought up a name that I've been very interested in following closely over the last year plus, and that's Peyton Paulette. Can you just give us a scouting report on what you know about him now following Tommy John surgery and considering he has a few professional starts under his belt? Yeah, I mean, like I said, if you're like if you want to talk about the risky demographic, it's the Peyton Paulette at a high school. That's like the risky, like six foot one, 185 pounds, whippy arm. He ended up getting hurt, like a different player entirely than Noah Schultz. But what what happened is he got hurt. He is available in the second round for overslot. And while he's still kind of finding it in terms of his command and and landing that fastball at the top of the zone, um, this is like Peyton Pellet could be like what Joe Kelly was for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I, I know he hasn't been quite as good with the with the White Sox, but like this is a hellish hellish breaking ball and the fastball is going to get back up to that 97 98 mile an hour range uh with time but i would just say be 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 slow with this because he was so good in college and he was so good as a true freshman and he's just now starting to get back um i do think that this kid can start i still think that the cutter and the changeup need to come along and they will um but you just you can't teach what Peyton Palette can do with a baseball to most guys. Like you can't teach 3,200 RPM breaking balls with feel for landing them. And when you can couple that with a fastball that can carry through the top of the zone, it's a tunneling arsenal that is is really going to work in today's meta. So yeah, you just got to be patient with him. Um, but there's no doubt, even if this kid doesn't start, he's going to be a leverageable piece at some point for the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, it's really exciting. And we're going to get into the draft conversation soon, uh, the upcoming 2023 amateur draft. But I just got one more name for you, and I'll uh, allow James to follow up. And that's Jonathan Cannon. We often hear that he's a high floor guy, pumps, strikes constantly. Do you think his stuff will play at a big league level? And do you think he can project to fly through the White Sox system over the next year plus? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, look, when you talk about Jonathan Cannon, you talk about a strike thrower. And that's those are the guys that shoot up the shoot up the system and end up, uh, you know, pitching for the big league club sooner rather than later. And he's off to a hot start. I mean, I, I know that he's run into uh, some bats this year, but he was really good in 2022. Uh, they're being aggressive, uh, aggressive with him in 2023, starting him at high A. Uh, this is not a guy that's going to strike out batters like it's just not. He's not a strikeout artist. He's going to be a sinker, cutter, slider guy. And I think, you know, the, the pitch that really interests me the most there is that cutter because the cutter was really coming on in the last month and a half that he was at Georgia and he was starting to get some swing and miss with that pitch. So I think if he can round himself into form of being a three or a four pitch guy, all of those pitches being, you know, frankly, probably just average offerings, maybe a solid average cutter, um, he projects to be a you know, maybe a low number three or a high number four, a guy that's going to pitch to contact and he's going to pitch long innings. And, you know, maybe he's the type of guy that can give you 190 innings and pitch to a, you know, a 3.9 ERA and 
um, be a really valuable piece towards the back end of your rotation. But to answer your question, yeah, I would expect Jonathan Cannon uh, moves pretty quickly and you might see him uh, the second half of 2024. So, Joe, this year's uh, 2023 draft class, very interesting to me, uh, seems pretty loaded. What, Where does this draft class rank, I guess, amongst ones that you've covered? So, in terms of depth, this is the deepest draft that I've seen in eight years. Um, from a personal perspective, that's just where I see it. And particularly, the college bats in this class, I mean, there are going to be like I know in, in in recent years, you had to convince yourself, you know, round number two, like, oh, there's some interesting draft. There's John Rhodes, like John Rhodes is really interesting or Jacob Burke. You guys drafted Jacob Burke. Like there's some interesting bats. No, like this year, there's legitimately going to be some very, very interesting college bats available in like the third round guys that would have gone early in the second round in previous years, like a like a Ryan Lasco at, at Rutgers, like that's a kid that might go in the early third round, middle of the third round that would have gone in like the top 50 picks in recent years. So this is a very, very deep draft. And I think it's really pretty top heavy too. like the top 10 to 12 to 13 picks in this class all have considerable upside. So I think there's definitely tiers where the talent drops off. But if you're looking for certainly bats, if you're looking for college bats this year, I, I can't remember a better year than this. And how how much do you think it's like directly influenced by the the five round draft in 2020? I mean that that's the reason. I I don't remember like this many college shortstops, right? Because they usually go pro like out of high school, and it just seems, you know, I think that's like the one area where it just seems like a lot different, and why there's so many hitters that are, you know, probably going to go early in the first round. Yeah, I agree. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good uh, college pitching, too, that we uh, wound up with because of that like Jackson Baumeister certainly would have gotten taken uh, if it was a normal year. I think Jerron Watts Brown uh, had a chance to get taken if it was any normal year. Uh, so, yeah, like I think the, the college depth, this is what we've been talking about since 2020, like 2023 has got to be a good year, right? It's got to be a good, deep year. I mean, Chase Dolander for for every for everything that he wasn't coming out of high school he's still a guy that i've talked to multiple teams they had a four or five hundred thousand dollar price tag on him that they wanted to give him that money uh and they weren't able to like Rhett louder is another one like guys were going to pay him uh maui ahuna now maui ahuna probably is a second round pick but you know guys like that kyle teal like these are all players that were would have been drafted if this was a normal draft year in 2020 but because it was so shortened and more importantly because bonus pools were so much smaller all of these guys got to school and now this year we're kind of seeing the benefits of it i still think like we'll see what the 2024 draft looks like because from from this point of view i i think it's going to be actually kind of a light year but man this is yeah this this is everything that kind of we were promised coming out of that 2020 draft. It's very deep. It's very top heavy and it's very talented. So Josh Nelson here at, you know, one of our partners with Sox machine, him and I do, you know, just like most of the draft coverage. And, you know, he, he's very heavily into like the, the college side, you know, the Intel that we've heard basically very college heavy at the top. And obviously we'll get into Max Clark and Walker Jenkins a little bit, but like besides them, it seems very college heavy. Have you heard similar? Is that what you're expecting? Yeah. I mean, kind of going back on what I said, like 
some of the guys that are going to go in the 15 to 30 range in this draft, like Matt Shaw at Maryland is legit. He is a very, very good player. And he's going to be available to teams that probably should have no business uh, having him be available. So, yeah, like this is an incredibly good college draft, uh, both on the on the bat side and to a lesser extent on the on the uh, on the college pitching side. Um, But I can't remember a draft that had this many talented college bats available that'll be available in the back third of the first round. Joe, you brought up a name, and I, I can't help myself. I have to ask about Jacob Burke because my guy James Fox here wrote a feature and interviewed Jacob, and it seems to me that person is very interested in becoming a star Major League Center fielder. What about his game gets you encouraged or optimistic that he could succeed in minor league and Major League Baseball? Whenever I'm evaluating a, a prospect, I always start and 80% of my evaluation is the hit tool. If you're a position player and you want to be a big leaguer, uh, unless you have enormous power, you better hit. And Jacob Burke never hit for a ton of power in college, and he never posted the gaudy exit velo numbers that would have you know, shoved him way up into the top 100 picks, but he always hit. And he cycled between center field and left field. And it didn't matter where you put him out there. He always played an exquisite level of defense. And all of that has kind of continued on uh, to Chicago. Now, granted, there's been more swing and miss in his game for the White Sox than I expected. But I expect that he's going to get back on the horse this year. If this kid was a left-handed hitter, I would be all over it. It's it's kind of a shame that he's a right-handed hitter. But... Um, yeah, I think he was probably my favorite pick uh, from the White Sox outside of like the top five rounds, just because I'd seen him do it for so long. And um, yeah, we'll see if it we'll see if it clicks for him. But that's a guy that I would certainly bet on with the track record of hitting. I encourage you to uh, also read James feature at futuresocks.com. If you haven't already, Jacob was very forthcoming and I learned a lot about him just by reading the quotes. So I encourage the listener to do that. All right, Joe. I want to take you to this player. We're going to get back to the draft, but I mean, this does relate to the draft, but this is somebody who I saw in person, and I wanted to talk to you about Dylan Head of Homewood Flossmoor High School in the Chicagoland area, because when you brought up Jacob Burke and your scout's eye, the fact that you look for players who can hit, I think about Dylan Head's future because he's a Clemson commit, and I saw him live. The kid is so fast, uh, sub four up the line to first and plays a professional center field already. And he's got a strong arm, very accurate in the outfield. And he does a little bit of pitching, but I foresee center field in his future. And I'm just curious about his hit tool. And I wonder how that'll translate in minor league baseball, because I think there's a little bit of work to do in Dylan Head's game. But what I'm seeing is he's a top 50 prospect in the league. What do you know about Dylan Head? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree that he's a top 50 prospect in this draft. Um, the guy can, there's a little bit of chase, like he, he'll definitely elevate for a fastball and the changeup away from a right-handed batter has given him some fits, but all that being said, you nailed it. I mean, the guy's, he's got premium, premium speed. He's a superb athlete. Um, the Midwest has been getting better and better prospects coming out of Illinois and Wisconsin of late. And this is just kind of you know, the next guy in line. Um, I've loved watching the motor. I've loved watching the attitude and the personality around his teammates. 
he's going to stick in center field. There's absolutely no doubt about that. I think the only question with Dylan Head, and this is kind of what uh, evaluators are going to be asking themselves, is the swing. The swing is, it's a little flat. It's definitely uh, tuned toward hitting line drives right now. That being said, I mean, he's he's hitting for some power in, in high school district play, but you you know, you've seen those fences. Sometimes they're 280 feet to, to right field. So I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a, you know, sign of things to come. Will he hit for enough power to be a guy that can run into 10 or 15 home runs at the next level? I'm not sure. And when you couple that with the chase rates, um, is the hit tool polished enough to go in the top 20 picks? I don't know. Personally, I love the bat path. I think the kid is definitely going to hit with more reps. He hit a ton on the showcase and tournament circuit last year. So he's seen that he's seen the high octane stuff and he's been able to, um, you know, adjust to it. So if you're asking the question, like where I think he's going to go, I probably think he goes in the 20 to 30 range. Um, and there's probably going to be a run of high school outfielders right in that range. Anyways, that 20 to 40 range. So uh, yeah, I, if, if you land Dylan head and, you know, Mike Shirley went with a local product last year, um, you should be awfully excited because he's he's a high school outfielder that I think could move pretty quick if the uh, if the hit tool is as good as what I think it could be. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Joe. So it does, you know, it's a it's a good draft class, but it does seem like there is a consensus player at the top and in Dylan Cruz. And, you know, you can tell me whether you agree, obviously. But my question is just with Pittsburgh at one, like it it just and we're so early, right? We have a long time and it it seems so obvious. But Boris is gonna want like the biggest bonus ever, right? Like are we looking at a situation where like it's possible that they don't take Dylan Cruz and they just spread money around? Like, you know, they've done similarly in the past. I, I don't know. I mean, Pittsburgh has been very flexible with their bonus pools in recent years. And because of that, like, I think that they would obviously prefer to scatter some money around and save a little money. I look at the 2020 draft and Scott Boris representing Spencer Torkelson. And, you know, Torkelson was a guy in that draft that was so... So he was so much better in terms of on paper than the next best prospect. Now he was a first baseman. You can take that away from him. Sure. But uh, Scott Boris got him the full slot, 8.4 million out of the 8.4 million for that slot. I have to imagine, and I could be proven wrong. I have to imagine that Boris is going to ask for the full slot amount. And it's, you know, there will be no negotiation. It's either the full slot 
or nothing. So we'll see what happens. You know, uh, they were able to move some money around with with Henry Davis a, a couple of years ago. I, I just I don't see that being the case here. I think it's going to take all nine million uh, to land Dylan Cruz. And I think you'd be silly not to land Dylan Cruz and, and give him what he's worth. Yeah, it does seem like it. I mean, look, there, there's been some rumblings from prominent like media draft types that, you know, that Pittsburgh likes Wyatt Lankford and, you know, things along those lines. So who knows? We're, we're a long way away, but I think when it's a Pittsburgh or even, you know, Baltimore's done it, but I think they, I think they would take the best prospect in, in, you know, if it were them again, Pittsburgh, it always just kind of gives me pause whether, whether we see that happen or not. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I touched on these guys earlier, Max Clark and Walker Jenkins, top prep hitters in this class. Thoughts on them? And then do you think any other prep guys, and I'll preface this again by we're really early, any other prep guys other than those two kind of sneak their way into the top 10 possibly? So I I currently have, I currently have Walker Jenkins a tick ahead of Max Clark just because I think Walker Jenkins is going to hit for power at the next level. And I, I question whether or not Max Clark is going to hit for enough power to be the impact, like slam dunk top high school player off the board that Jenkins uh, could be. I mean, Jenkins could be um, one of the more established power hitting corner outfielders in baseball, if it all clicks. So they're both really good players. And I definitely think that they're both going to go in the top, like seven picks there's a couple of other guys that I think could go in the top 10. One that I, I keep hearing more and more is is pushing his way up there is Bryce Eldridge, uh, right-handed pitcher, first base outfield for James Madison High School, 6'7", 218. Like, people are comparing this kid to what Spencer Jones was uh, before he got hurt at Vanderbilt. The kid can just, he can run, he can go get it. It's massive raw power. He's up to 97 on the mound. Uh, and by all accounts, he's uh, an 80 grade human being. So that's a guy that I think could certainly sneak up there. And then, you know, I don't know if Arjun Namala, the shortstop out of Strawberry Crest, is going to go in the top 10. I would personally take him in the top 10. I've got him as the sixth best player in this class. I think it's just a, a package of tools that is almost impossible to find. And he's still going to be 17 years old on draft day. Um I would take Arjun Namal in the top 10. I don't know if he's going to go in the top 10, but if we're looking out, if we're projecting out, um, that's a guy that I would be all over early in the draft. Love having draft experts on early because we get to revisit some of the stuff that you, you know, bring to the air for us and we get to react. And I know we're in April, but I'm looking at some stats on a guy named Paul Skeens, right-handed pitcher in LSU. He turns 21 next month and across 16 innings now on this date, April 23rd, he's got a sub two ERA, but 115 strikeouts to just 12 walks. I mean, six, six, the kid seems like he's ticketed to be a top 10 pick. I don't know where you slot Paul Skeens and where the rest of the pitching staff goes uh, from the college perspective, but what are your evaluations there and, and uh, among the other college pitchers? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll defer to some research that that Tyler Jennings over at Prospects Live did on this. I thought it was fascinating research. He, so Paul Skeens apparently has the highest strikeout rate of any college pitcher in the last like 20 years that was the top strikeout artist of their class, um, which kind of speaks volumes to some of the other arms that we've seen come through college baseball. Um, he's a very unique talent. I mean, 6'6", 250, uh, he moves like a gazelle a 91 mile an hour slider, the changeup. Here's the, here's the crazy thing, guys. Like 
Paul Skeens, when he arrived at LSU, scouts had the changeup as his best weapon. I mean, it was like he was like 95 to 96 with uh, potentials for an above average changeup with some parachute action late and a slider that was inconsistent. Like he didn't know how to spot it. It was mostly 82 to 84. You know, he gets with Wes Johnson here at, at LSU. He's throwing the slider 87 to 91. Uh, it's got incredible sweeping action and tunnel off the fastball. He hardly throws the changeup. So I think you kind of look at that and you go, well, man, if, I mean, if you get this into a pro organization and suddenly you can get back to that changeup and working it against left-handed hitters, what could Paul Skeens be? Um, and th- the only reason his ERA is even where it is is because guys are having to cheat and and hit the 100-mile-an-hour fastball at the top of the zone. And, I, I mean, you know how that works. If, if you can... If you can make contact with a hundred that's carrying through the top of the zone at a with a metal bat in a college baseball stadium, it's going to leave. So home runs has been kind of the only thing that's got Paul Skeens in trouble this season. Um, he's certainly the best, you know, college pitching prospect I've seen uh, to this point. You know, it's kind of strange that he's unseated Chase Dollander for that title, even though Chase Dollander was getting those praises coming into the season. Um, I I just think this sets up in a way that. You know, with Mike Rizzo's track record with the Washington Nationals drafting big conference pitching, I, I would just be surprised if he got past Washington. But, you know, it wouldn't stun me. The White Sox pick at 15. Is there a pitcher that falls to them that you think is worthwhile? Or is there a projection system that you have working uh, that would suggest the White Sox may go pitching or position player? You know, I we're, we're not quite to the draft cycle piece where we start actually connecting teams with players. Now I can tell you where we've seen a number of, you know, White Sox scouts, but that doesn't mean anything when <laughs> that number of players is so big, like in terms of what they would go for. I don't, you know, here's what I'm stuck on guys. The White Sox for the last year and a half have kind of underwhelmed. And I, you know, I mean that respectfully, they, they haven't performed up to their level And so you kind of look at like this competitive window with the White Sox and you go, what is it? Like, what is the competitive window? Are we sure that this competitive window is, is, you know, slammed open for the next two or three years or is, you know, some retooling on the horizon. And because of that, you know, a guy like Hurston Waldrop at Florida with the reliever risk that he has, you know, ordinarily I'd say, you know, with what they did with Garrett Crochet and some of the other picks that they've had, I'd say, Hurston Walger, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you could put him into that big league bullpen uh, pretty quickly and, you know, still groom him up to start. So I think with how good this class is from a hitting standpoint, I expect the White Sox to go with a college hitter. And, you know, maybe that is like a Brock Wilkin. Um, you know, the Yoan Moncada experiment or experience is kind of, you know, growing a little bit uh, thin. So we'll see how long he's with the team. But, you know, I look at a guy like Brock Wilkin. I look at maybe a guy like Aiden Miller. Um, You know, those would be the guys that I would circle. And if Mike Shirley was to go the route that he's done in the last few years, like Thomas White from Phillips Academy is a six foot five inch lefty that's been up to 96 with two really good weapons. And then the other piece is, you know, Walker Martin, a shortstop from Eaton, Colorado, Arkansas commit. He's six foot five. I mean, he's kind of got the starter kit of what Colson Montgomery is with more athleticism. So uh, those are some names super, super early on that I would that I would circle. But the White Sox are just in a weird place to kind of 
truly understand like where they are in terms of needs and like what this team looks like in 2026. Yeah, so a guy you mentioned earlier, Arjun Damala, is that how you say his name? If if he yeah. got to 15 and they didn't take him, I'd be pretty upset. But, you know, that that would that would be I I'm with you there where he could go before them, but that's that's what I would be pounding the table for. Just as many mm-hmm. prep shortstop and center fielders as possible is is kind of what I would prefer. But, you know, one guy that the White Sox I can confirm like I can connect them to so far is Yoandi Morales, the third baseman at mm-hmm. Miami, you know, the White Sox had a lot of interest in him in 2020. And I think it's similar to kind of something that you talked about earlier. The, these teams just like didn't have money. He went to college instead. Um, you know, they've always liked guys with Team USA and would bat success and things along those lines. I know he's, you know, he, he was okay to start this year so far. What would you think about, I guess, that pick at 15 and then I guess anything else that you've heard similar about the White Sox being connected to him at all they they have taken Miami players recently as well yeah I mean they exchanged numbers with with Yo-Yo Morales as a high schooler I think there was a there was a situation there there was a way that that draft could have played out where Yo-Yo Morales is is wearing you know uh, White Sox colors right now uh, so they certainly like him, and he's only gotten better since he's arrived on campus. There's there's no doubt about that. I would be a little surprised if they went for him at, at what was that, 15 you guys said that the White Sox pick at? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, th- my, my only hesitation with Yo-Yo, and he's been really good in the month of April, so this might age poorly, um, but he got off to such a, such a kind of a concerning start with the hit tool. There was a ton, and I mean a ton of chase, uh, the bat to ball was was you know concerning that the contact rate was under seventy percent for a long time, and he looked more and more like a like a second round pick who was carried by by his raw power. Uh, that has obviously improved. It's still kind of at a level where I I wouldn't expect him to go in the top twenty picks. Uh, probably fits more in that twenty to forty range, or, or you know we'll see what happens the rest of the ACC uh, year. But he's a great athlete at third base. Uh, he's got a really strong arm. Uh, he's still got some projection in in a, like a long, lanky frame. Um, but I think the, the biggest question with Yo-Yo, like I said, is, is he going to hit? And if he's not going to hit, you're probably talking about a guy that uh, at the at the big league level is like a 235 to 240 hitter who runs into you know 25 home runs a year, which is a good player. Um, but in such a deep draft, to take that at 15, I think is maybe at least for me, a little rich. All right, Joe. So, you know, lots of new rules in baseball. One of them benefits your Mariners in this case. You know, the the rookie of the year rule where the Mariners now basically have an extra first round pick. Obviously, selfishly, you're happy with that um, because it's the Mariners. What do you think about the rule overall? And then just anything different, you know, any thoughts you have on that rule or any of the other ones that could affect like the next few drafts, I guess. Yeah, so even before the whole Mariners thing happened, first of all, what an intriguing draft it's going to be for Seattle. Three picks in the top 30. Um, even if you're not like selfishly rooting for them to bring in a haul, uh, what a fascinating just team to watch on day one of the draft. So uh, that's going to be really, really a pretty cool thing to experience. But uh, in terms of the rule itself, I love the rule. I think a byproduct of the rule is is that we are not seeing prospects like top prospects get called up at all 
uh, from June, July, August. And, you know, you'll start seeing some players called up like that second week of September, that cup of coffee, just so long as they stay under the rookie threshold. So you get into the next year, you start them at the big league level, they, they qualify for those incentives. Um, so I do think we're going to see less top prospects called up whatsoever during most of the summer, which is a bummer, uh, especially for competing teams. But I think the pros of, you know, starting a player on opening day or close to it and having them play for your team the entire season is a fan and marketing dream. So I love that. Um, in terms of other rules, you know, we're going to have to wait until at least 2027 or 2028 for this when the next CBA is ratified. I have no idea why we have not figured out a way to trade draft picks. And I understand that it's a competitive balancing, but I think there's ways to regulate it to where it makes sense. Um, I just think there's there would be so much intrigue in a team like, you know, the New York Yankees trading their three top picks to the Pirates for Brian Reynolds and, you know, throwing in a player. I just think that'd be so good for the game. It'd be so good for the draft. It's an event that Major League Baseball is trying to elevate um, and ascend into like a primetime viewing experience. Um, so I'd really like to see them find a way during the next CBA to allow teams to move some draft picks around on draft day. Yeah. So Mike, really quick, just to follow up, like, you know, if teams start their their top prospects in the majors and then they go on to win rookie of the year, like the team gets a first round pick. It is something where they got to be on like two of three top 100 prospect lists, right? It's like ESPN, MLB yeah. and Baseball America. So yep. this isn't like we don't we don't talk much Cubs on this podcast. Um, but Matt Mervis like was only on one of those lists, I think. Do you, mm -hmm. Joe, from, you know, from Seattle, like, do you, do you think that has any influence on like why Matt Mervis like isn't in Chicago right now? Cause it's, it's kind of weird, like looking just at them playing Eric Hosmer and competing, you know, with the production they're getting at first base, like why Matt Mervis is not in Chicago right now. Yeah. I mean, I think, listen, like, I think the Cubs are in a weird place where it's like, are we, are we good? You know, like they were not a good team last year. And I think the team is still kind of trying to figure out, do we have enough pitching to, to, you know, make a run at this this year. And if they do have enough pitching and they're still in the position that they are, you know, like May 10th, you know, give this two or three more weeks. I, I don't think Matt Mervis is the type of guy that you hold down all the way to September in the hopes that you get an additional first round pick in 2025 or 2024 or however that timing works out. So um, all due respect to Matt Mervis, not a guy that you that you keep down you bring him up in May if you're still in the position that you're in and you 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 let him contribute to the team. But no, I, I really don't think the prospect promotion incentive has anything to do with Mervis uh, being with the team or not being with the team right now. What about the uh, minor league baseball players getting represented by Major League Baseball's Players Association and, uh, and, and all that comes with that? Because, you know, uh, anybody that I've asked about minor league players being represented by major league baseball's union kind of scoffed and said it's too complicated or there's too many hangups. It's not going to happen. Well, it looks like uh, we're on the forefront finally of minor league yeah. baseball players getting a little bit more of what they deserve. Yeah. I really hope uh, major league baseball and the PA and, and everybody involved in that muddy complex situation uh, takes care of these players. Now I think we can all agree that, the the conditions for these minor league players have improved 
dramatically over the last two years. The the fact that, especially the guys at AA and AAA, the fact that those guys are making a considerable, like a living wage is, mm-hmm. is, I mean, it was, it was such a, sh- it was a sham that they weren't making the money that they were provided, especially with these teams marketing their top prospects as, oh, this is the next big thing. Like make it out to the ballpark, get like, get there while they last. They could get called up any day. Now, the fact that those guys were making 13 grand is like a travesty. So I'm glad, I'm glad that these guys are still making money. And frankly, like I, I understand that the guys at low A still aren't making the money that they need to be making, but at least this is an incentive to get them higher and higher and higher up the ladder. You will make more money as you continue to play good baseball. So yeah, it's a, it's a positive. Uh, the game is moving in the right direction. It's still well short of where it needs to be in terms of getting these guys compensated the way that they need to be. Um, but ever since 2020, it seems like every year there's been a positive development for minor leaguers in terms of their quality of life. So I'm excited to see and I'm hopeful that uh, their quality of life and compensation will continue to tick up as, as we move further and further down this road. Right. I'm with you. And I hope organizations take care of their living situations as well. I mean, if you take care of that, then yeah. maybe the compensation could be a little bit easier to handle, even if it's a little bit below average. Joe, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. We talked about the Mariners. Hey, shout out to Jared Kellenick. Is he finally here? Boy, you know, <laughs> I've been asked that question by so many people. And I got to <laughs> say, I said, I said before the season, I went on a couple of radio shows and I said, there is one of two outcomes here that's going to happen. Jared Kelnick is not going to be a middling major league player. He's either going to not be a major league player and be a guy that posts, you know, 60 to 70 WRC plus for the rest of his short career. And he'll bounce between team and team guys trying to see if they can unlock something. Or he's going to be a 120 to 130 weighted runs created plus guy. Like the, the, the talent is so great that I just don't see a middle ground. And the biggest thing that I've taken away from Kelnick's hot start is this past week, he just got out of an 0 for 11, like rut, if you will. And with how hot he's been, 0 for 11 is, you know, a, a pretty considerable little slump against the Brewers. Uh, he never slammed the bat. We never saw an F-bomb. Uh, he never seemed deterred. Uh, he was putting good swings on the ball. And that's just something that, at least from a local perspective, you never saw. I mean, he would he was a nightmare to watch just for your own sanity because he was so toxic with the way that he presented himself. He's just competitive to a fault. And so I think he's in a much better headspace. We'll see whether or not this can survive in like an 0 for 17 or an 0 for 18 slump. But um, I never doubted the raw tools and uh, they're really starting to, to, to come out right now. He looks like an all star. That's Joe Doyle. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. All right, guys. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Doyle, M-I-L-B. Make sure you follow Future Stars series as well for all your prospect information. The upcoming draft in 2023 for Major League Baseball, we'll have you covered on Sox Machine and FutureSox.com. Become a patron if you're willing and able. For James Fox and Joe Doyle, my name's Mike Rankin. We release episodes every Tuesday. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks so much for listening.